I was trawling the internet for great quotes about walking and I found one from the novelist Elizabeth von Arnim. She's right up Folk on Foot Street because she says walking is the perfect way of moving if you want to see into the life of things. It's the one way of freedom. If you go to a place on anything but your own feet, you're taken there too fast and miss a thousand delicate joys that were waiting for you by the wayside. Welcome back to Folk on Foot. We're on the beach at Exmouth, the Devon seaside town that does what it says on the tin, because this is the mouth of the River X, which rises 50 miles away on Exmoor and makes its way down here to the sea. And it's one of the longest seafronts in the UK. Beautiful beach, and it's wonderful to be walking here on a crisp, sunny March morning. Some of the rocks around here are 185 million years old, but we're here to meet somebody who arrived a bit more recently. Steve Knightley, who's half of the folk duo Show of Hands, a singer, a guitarist, a songwriter who grew up in Exmouth and then lives nowadays in Topsham. And we're going to make that journey up the River X with him on foot. We're going to walk from Exmouth to Topsham to learn about his life, about his music, and about the landscape that inspires so many of the songs he's written for Show of Hands. I was born in a Devonshire seaside town 21 years ago Failed at school, broken only and those old scars will show But my girl Amy's just 19 She wants to be a nurse She says we need skills and if we don't Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Matthew. How are you? I'm very good. You brought the dogs? I brought two dogs. I've got a Springer there and a Tibetan Terrier. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> the Springer's completely soaking wet, yeah, been in the sea. That's right. And the Terrier, uh, because it's Tibetan, it's never seen snow until last week. <laughs> and went absolutely crazy. Absolutely rolled in it and ran around. But this one is in and out of the water all the time. And she's <laughs> going to be dropping the ball at our feet all the time. Yeah. Now, what can we see from the beach here that is part of your story? Well, you can't see the dunes. They were part of my teenage years. <laughs> the, <laughs> the dunes were washed away by the southerly storms about three years ago. But what you have behind us, we're on the, the eastern side of the X there. There's the, it's called the Bathhouse now, but that was the Deer Leap Folk Club that used to run twice a week from the age of when I was 14 till I was about 19. And just up towards the, uh, the south of that, you've got the Pavilion, which is a bit of an end of the pier 
um, venue. It does lots of tribute bands. But we've sort of put it on the folk and acoustic roots map by finishing our tours here every autumn. So you can see I've gone 100 yards in 30 <laughs> Started at the bathhouse yeah, and right. moved to the pavilion. Yeah, so the career hasn't exactly gone stratospheric. Where did folk music come into your life? How did it happen? I wasn't born into a folky family. Like There's, there's a current generation in their 30s and 40s who, who are the offspring of the folk revivalists of the 60s. It's in their DNA, but I heard as much rock and roll. My parents used to work at a clock tower ta- cafe in Exeter. They used to bring home the records from the jukebox. So I heard Dylan and Joan Byers and the Birds and the Beatles. I heard it all in one context. But as a, as a kid growing up here, I was, we'd moved a lot, so I, I found it quite hard to make friends. But playing the guitar was my passport to sort of like parties, beach parties, all that sort of stuff. The Scandinavian students used to come here in the summer, and they were a ready-made audience for a sort of shy 15-year-old boy, you know. And what were the first kind of songs you played on the guitar? It was mainly the sort of finger-picking singer-songwriter American stuff, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, James Taylor, a lot of gloomy stuff, really. I hadn't really discovered English traditional folk. In other words, I didn't realise that stuff had British roots at the time. A lot of these Come Gather Round songs and Come All You songs and the stuff I heard Joan Byers singing, I didn't realise that it came from a tradition that was sort of mine as well. And then you heard Martin Carthy. Yeah. Did he make a big impression on yes, you? Yes, he did. The, the Sidmouth Folk Festival is just around the coast. I don't know, about eight miles around, around, the, around that headland there. And I went over there when I was about 14. Stayed away from home without permission, which is a, a bit alarming because no one <coughs> noticed I was missing, which was a bit worrying. I could have stayed away all week. <laughs> and I heard Martin Carthy playing these English traditional songs. And, and unlike the American stuff, he wasn't inhabiting the song. He was being other people you know, the soldier in Waterloo or the farmer in the field. Whereas in Dylan, it was, it was always the, the narrator in the middle of it. And I, that, that sort of fascinated me, that way you can become other people in song. And when summer comes round, I'll be found Working all along the beach I'm hiring boards, putting up chairs You've got to keep your dreams in reach Staring at the stars, Amy and me Soaking up the sun-warm ground Lying in the dunes, sand in her hair Look at the mountain round We talk about America We dream of Spain We don't want another winter here In this English rain We long for Australia We'll catch your waves all day You know we weren't born here How did you start writing? I met the poet Ted Hughes when I was 15. Uh, it was a creative writing course in North Devon and we had to read our sort of scribblings to him and he said some things to me which really switched me on to that more poetic sensibility, you know. After he'd read some of his poems around this old Victorian fireplace in this lovely old drawing room, he said, you know, what's your name, son? And I said, Steve Knightley. And then he said to me, no, what's your full name? And when I said Stephen Andrew Knightley, he sort of bent over and said, the ancient Celts said if you gave a man your full name, he had your soul. Then he sort of closed his hand like he was catching a fly and he said, now I've got yours. You know? And I think looking back, that, that input of Dylan and Carthy and Ted Hughes, I mean, I'm not claiming to be a poet, but I, there's elements of that in, in what I try and write. How important is Devon to you? Very much so. I mean, it, it gives you a sense of place. Although originally, I mean, I thought my story would be this is the town I escaped from. 
you know, and my success I measure by the distance I put between here and where I end up, you know, whether it's, you know, Hampstead <laughs> or who knows. But it hasn't turned out like that. We've returned to our roots and we found here a, a source of, of writing, not just in the traditional music, but in the people and in the places and in the friends you, you meet, really. But folk music is always about people working, you know, in the field or the farm. It's, n it's not really about journalists, accountants or lawyers. It's very rarely, sometimes about generals, but it's very rarely about sort of middle classes. It, it tends to not romanticise, but it just describes people's working lives as they encounter change. And then one dark night, my best friend stole a car by the docks. I wish we had seen the London plates Never would have forced the locks Hit the M5 110 Laughing as the clock span around We left it burning in a clifftop field Lit our way to town He was almost home But they were waiting Either end of his road he was trapped in the yard at the back of the spot Where the vans and the lorries unload I heard the sirens, I saw the flashing lights Found him left for dead And there's Amy at the inn, he working all night Through the glass door, shaking her head Our talk about America, these dreams of Spain Have we got another winter now, in this English rain? Oh, Australia, never catch waves this way You say you were born here, maybe you'll stay Maybe you'll stay And this, the River X estuary that we're going to walk up yeah. later on yeah is a, a big tourist attraction, isn't it? It is, it, particularly for bird watchers. But what's in a sense protected it is that the railway goes up both sides. What you can see in the distance is the bit that gets washed away every time there's a major storm. That's the main London to Cornwall route. Right. And it's right along the coast. So consequently, there's been no development along the coastline on either side. And on this side, you have the Exmouth to Exeter branch. So, I mean, a railway line isn't exactly picturesque, but it does protect the whole riverside, uh, you know, from, from overdevelopment. And you can see all sorts of different species of birds here, yeah, can't you? Yeah, avocets is the thing that really brings people. All sorts of wading birds and avocets. Uh, we used to go cockling when I was a kid. There's amazing cockle beds. I think they're condemned at the moment or they're not considered safe. But as you can see, we're crunching all over um, mussel shells and oyster shells. But the local rugby team is called the cockles as well because it was a, a seriously productive cockle bed. And you're a big fan of the Exeter Chiefs, I gather. I am, really. I started playing rugby in this area when, when I was about 18 or 19, when I, I successfully failed my A-levels and all my friends left. It was what kept me sane for a year, really, Witherkin Rugby Club. It was my social life, and I learned how to more or less hold a pint of beer what you've got in this area are lots and lots of small towns between five and 10,000 people, all within an hour of Exeter. So now you have this fantastic local rivalries. Uh, and at that time, when we were kids, Exeter were the equivalent of a non-league football team. And now they're one of the best in Europe. So their rise has been extraordinary. 
in a sense, mirrored by the rise of show of hands from playing pubs to the Albert Hall. <laughs> well, that's my fantasy anyway. <laughs> no, I'm, I go there a lot. I mean, I'm a member there and um, I play on the pitch occasionally for big what, matches. What position do you play? I used to play... Sorry, I play music. <laughs> so yeah, I thought you meant no. you played rugby. I, I did play. I used to play centre, but I've... Right. But I've played on the pitch when they have a big, big cup match and they want someone to hopefully rouse the crowd. Right. I think you're going to take us to meet somebody who inspired one of your songs today, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, I am. There's a, an old friend of mine called Dave Curley. He's from an Exmouth family and he's, he's a fisherman. And he told me about something that happened to him and his father just, what, half a mile, a mile from where we are standing now between Exmouth and, and Dawlish in Tynmouth you know, one November's afternoon as he was diving for scallops. Well, let's go meet Dave okay. and maybe he can tell us more about the story and maybe you'll right. sing us the song. I might sing you the song indeed and he, he might remember a completely different version but <laughs> I hope I've got most of the details right. So we've arrived now at Exmouth Docks and we're with Dave um, and Steve on Dave's boat. I'm all agog now to learn a bit about this incident that provoked Steve's song, The Dive. OK, where do you want you this actually happened to you. When did it happen to you? Uh, about 1997. I used to go out with my dad uh, commercial fishing. We had nets and we'd go diving for scallops afterwards. Or one of us would go diving and one of us would do the nets. That particular incident, I just said to Steve one day, I said, this is what happened. And he turned it into an amazing song. One November's noon. We left the docks, heading southwest from Morecambe Rocks. My dad and me, our nine to five. He used to steer, and I used to die. It was a normal sort of day and we dived every single day and as my dad was sorting through the nets and taking all the bits of crab out and the fish, I went down for a dive. As he's sorting the net, he follows my boy along the surface so we know where we are and we keep fairly limited area on a small reef about three miles out to sea where there's big pebbles and the scallops like to lay up and under the pebbles. So over the side, I slowly went down A hundred below where the sea waters brown But after an hour I got low on air When I surfaced again But his boat wasn't there that particular day, as the wind picked up, my boy obviously went faster and faster away. My the dad's boat followed it along. When he came up from the nets to see where I was, he was noticed that we were quite close to the shore in Tidmouth. And he thought, well, he must have been swimming like a marathon swimmer to go a mile away. He picked the boy up and there was no line on the end of it. You weren't attached to it? No, my boy had popped off. Where were you? Two miles back. The weather started to deteriorate quite quick. It was late in the day. Sun was going down. I came up and you normally pull the weight of yourself up on the buoy and I've realised that the line was just coming down and there was no buoy attached so straight away I thought oh this might be trouble. Cause my marker boy must have come untied and drifted away with his boat at his side he looked at his watch three miles to the south and he turned back again with his heart in his mind. 
I got to the surface and it chopped up quite a bit. And I realised, I looked around, trying to bob over the waves to look for where Dad's boat was. No sign of the boat whatsoever, nobody else around. And within 10 minutes of being on the surface, the weather really deteriorated, wind picked up, choppy seas. I thought, well, he's going to struggle to find me now. I thought, well, the best thing I can do is drop my weight belt and um, took off my dive pack, put it on the front as a sort of buoyancy and just sat there in the waves bobbing away. But it's very lonely at sea then when there's nobody else around and no other boats. And I realised that it was quite bad. Soft rain on my face The sun almost set I cut loose the weights And I let fall my nets The lights on the shore Were shining Bright and clear, the cold was drifting in, and there was nobody near. Nobody near. And what was going on his end? What did you find out later was going on when he found out that you weren't well, there? Well, he absolutely panicked and going around in circles trying to look for me on the surface, but it's very hard to spot a little black head in the water when you've got a sort of two-mile circumference. So he was just going around in circles, but he was out of my range as well. So I couldn't see him, he couldn't see me. And then he went back to the original mark, but which time I'd swam off because I'd seen a big sailing marker about half a mile away. And I thought, at least if I can get to there, I can strap myself in and at least I'll be able to find the bodies what I actually thought, <laughs> which is a bit grim. Was there ever a real, a rod or a line? was so strong and true, so straight or so fine. Now we're talking probably three or four hours have gone by. Dad was really reluctant to call the lifeboat because he thought that they're not going to have any chance of finding me either and they're going to alert everyone else to the fact that I'm missing and he was pretty sure he could find me. As the tide unwound him through time and space till he came out the darkness Right to that place. We went back to the original mark. I saw him and managed to flag him down and it was just like massive hugs and relief and yeah. Father-son moment. moment, yeah, it really yeah. was, yeah. Now we don't talk much about those days. I got two kids of my own now with one on the if they're to grow and if they're to thrive one day they'll go and one day they'll dive and when they come up for light and for air I hope someone's close I hope someone's November We're leaving the docks, my son and me, and we're just off Orkham Rocks. Let's dive. Let's dive. You must break free. Let go.
perfect seagull moment. That was fantastic. You cued those seagulls in, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant because the song is actually so true to what I told Steve. He's just made it into a fantastic song. So How does it feel when you sit here on your boat and hear him perform it? Uh, it's so emotional. I mean, I've seen Steve play loads of times, but that was actually quite special. Yeah. Very special. And, and I suppose it brings back memories of your dad as well. Yes, we were talking just before this interview that a kingfisher comes out the docks here and every time I see it I think it's my dad because he passed away a few years ago and my son is, like the song, is just about to start diving, going on his full, first school trip, so I'm sure he'll be going down the same route. Yeah. So. Steve, what was it about the story that struck you that made you think there's a song here? Well, at that time we didn't have kids. You know, we'd known each other for a while, but this is before kids. And I just thought that's a good folk story. You know, it's a good like, working man. But then what happened subsequently, when, when my son um, uh, was diagnosed with leukaemia, he, he's fine now, it became more about being there for people when they emerge from darkness. So for a while I couldn't sing the song because it was too personal. But now we've both got three kids, which is odd, almost identical in the same age. It's still that story of, of working people, you know, facing change or facing adversity. But now it's also about being there for people. So it's gained another sort of chapter, really. And that's what touches people's hearts when you it play is. it, isn't it's, it? Yes, it is. They see the story unfold, but they can think of periods in their life that similar things have happened to them, telling the story. But there's another story that, that Dave told me about recovering that chat that I think is another amazing potential for a song about not leaving anyone behind. And it's in particular... Like about, the Marines. Yeah, but it could be about a military, it could be about a group of friends, or it could be about a relationship, but it's another one I'm going to work on as well. Tell me about that, Dave. What, what's that story about? Well, it was a, a very well-known fisherman in Exmouth, a really good friend of mine. Um, one day he went out, he was a sprat fisherman, where they have a huge net uh, circling the sprats, they chase them down. And on this particular day, they caught a huge amount of sprats, and it was a flat, calm day, but something happened... The boat started to go down and uh, two crew jumped overboard and he went back in the cabin to press an alarm to tell other boats that he was in trouble. In those split seconds that the him pressing the alarm, the boat went down and the water rushed in, pushed him further into the cabin and he, he went down with the boat. And uh, it was classed as a, you know, a tragic accident at the time, but nobody would go and recover the body. And of course his wife and two children were completely distraught. So I, with my diving experience, knew some technical divers because the boat went down in deep water and put a team together to go out and get him. And some of the local boats came out with us as well. And was it a really dangerous expedition? Um, at the time, I think we just, I just did it solely from the heart and just wanted to recover him as a friend. Uh, didn't really take in the implications of what might happen to the divers, although we took all the right procedures and precautions. Uh, they went down and within seconds they'd recovered the body and brought him back to the surface. We all feared the worst because he'd been underwater for two weeks. Uh, luckily he was in deep water and enclosed in the cabin and it was just like our old friend came back to us. Um, and you reunited him with his family? With his family and his wife and his son was over the moon. His son worked for me at the time. It was very, you know, the whole community and then we were the um, pole bearers at the, at, of the coffin at the church. The church was absolutely rammed in Exmouth, Exmouth Trinity. There's now a plaque on the seafront about him, and, yeah, it's quite special. And from your point of view, Steve, are you like a kind of magpie going around listening to people's stories and, and thinking, I'll store that one away and that could be material for a, for a song in the future? I think there's a people that are close to a writer, they have one fear is that they're going to end up in the song 
and the other fear is that they won't. You know, it's like, <laughs> but when you hear a story like that, you, you can think of the poetry of it. You know, if you can then apply that to other people's situations, and there's so many situations, I, I won't leave you behind. I mean, it, it's a chorus. As long as you do it with, with true to the spirit of it, and you don't try and make it frothy or lightweight and just tell the story if you just tell the story that's more than even when dave told the story then i found that quite moving me too you know, because it's yeah. extraordinary isn't it and it and you can think of people that you did leave behind maybe you know it, it's yeah it's a tough one and do you think you're in a tradition too because you're telling stories about working people and the things that happen to them, good and bad. Do you think you're part of a tradition that goes back hundreds of years? Well, it's, a, it's storytelling, isn't it, at the end of the day? The good thing about folk songs, they never, they never tell you what to think. They never say, and wasn't that terrible when that happened? Or shouldn't we have been more careful? There's no moral judgments. You just lay out a story in everyday language. And, and that seems to be, for me, why they've, they've lasted so long, you know. Steve, it's been great talking here on the boat. Dave, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much no indeed. Problem. But I think we need to set off because we're going to walk up the estuary towards Topsham now. So, uh, Dave, we'll say goodbye. OK, thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much indeed. No problem. Um, and Steve and I'll set off. We've just come through the village of Limpston and we're walking alongside the ex-estuary now with the railway line just to our left and uh, Steve's two dogs just ahead of us. Steve, I want to pick up on some more of your life story because you said to me earlier that when you were younger, your dream was to get out of Exmouth and, and to see the big wide world. I think you, you did get out for a time, didn't you? You went to London. Yeah, when I started writing and I started sort of um, playing music, you know, you dream of fame and fortune, don't you? So you think that the, the small seaside town where you're from... Oh, it's like you dropped your ball. I have. <laughs> you think that the small seaside town is... You know, you measure your success in terms of the distance you put between your, your roots and where you end up, you know. That's the classic arc, isn't it, of, a, of supposed fame and fortune. But my musical journey sort of brought me back home, which I didn't expect, but it's actually very nice. You wanted to be a rock god at one time, though, I didn't did. you? I did. Well, you know, as I say, I wasn't born into a folky family, so, you know, I thought that the big bucks, the big claps, if you play guitar was to, you know, learn to play acoustic guitar, then pick up an electric, and then I was on the London rock scene for about seven or eight years. I did all the classic pubs, you know, the Greyhound, the Golden Lion, the Half Moon Putney, Hope and Anchor. Did you enjoy it? Um, I did enjoy it. was party time. London, when you're 24, you know, really. We had a good time. It, there's a sort of desperation about it because you're aware of the sort of hunger you have to have inside yourself to be successful in that sort of field. And in those days, you had to be signed. You couldn't just make music and be heard. The, the, the signing from a record company was the key to the demo, which was the cue, the cue to the, the publishers, the record companies, the radio. It's never been as democratic as it is now, but in those days, you ended up worrying about more uh, the A&R guy that didn't turn up than the 150 people enjoying themselves. <laughs> you know, it's very distorted, that sort of musical period. But at the time, I had a great time, yeah. And was it something that in the end you just thought, this is not for me, it's not happening? No, well, I was 32, you know, the band had broken up. The management deal had stopped. Well, what do you do with your life, you know? You know, we, we sold the flat in Maida Vale and moved to the West Country thinking, I had to go to music, it hasn't worked out. So how did the folk music bug come back into your life? Um, really, it was down to Phil, you know. Phil Beer, uh, your yeah, partner in Show of Hands. Yeah, I, was, I say I was about 32, and this is in the sort of late 80s. He said, look, let's go and do some folk clubs. Let, let's reconnect with the music that we learnt on the East Devon folk scene. 
and we maybe did about 20 or 30 in that first few years or so. But we met up with an agent um, called Peter Wilson in Bridport in the early 90s, and he got us a lot of pub gigs. And what we started to do was to play my original songs, but in the context of a bar. And that gives them a great edge. You know, it gives them... You become well, it's a tough great, audience, though, isn't it? It is, but if, you, if your own songs survive alongside... You know, Creedence Clearwater Rival, The Beatles and The Stones and The Blues, and you chuck in your own stuff, those songs get honed and they get very fit. And whereas some of our friends were playing in very quiet rooms in folk clubs and concerts, we were learning how to bash it out in some pretty hostile environments. What sort of reaction did you get sometimes? Oh, sometimes it was a nightmare, you know. Uh, Sometimes you're just playing to an indifferent bunch of of bikers or sailors, you know, or staring at each other with undisguised longing, you know, as I say. But but, uh, eventually you do build up a following in these places. So you've talked about the journey away from here Mm -hmm. and now you're back here. Mm -hmm. Does it feel right? Does it feel like this was always the right place for you and the roots that you always had here are the roots that you want to celebrate? Yeah, it's, it's got a sense of completeness to it, without a doubt. You know, I've been writing songs about this area. You know, would, if I was living in Hampstead, looking out west, I would, I'd want to be living here anyway, even if I'd had my lottery ticket moment with a song, which hasn't happened. But we have a very rounded career, I think, you know, in terms of our concerts, our festivals. We are known locally. I get a lot of pats on the head. You know, it, it's, it, it does feel that there's a unity between the songs the person I am, where I'm living, and what I'm doing at the moment. Weymouth, Seatman, Sidmouth, Exmouth, Dawlish and Chinmouth and Torbay. And all around our shoreline, so many dreams. <laughs> Look, an audience. <laughs> Sorry, we held you up. Thank you, Steve. Well, it works, doesn't it? Again, it's all local flavour. So we're on the boardwalk now, and you keep hearing these bikes whizzing past. You take your life in your hands, actually, you don't do, you, with yeah. the lycra-clad the psycho, menace coming through? The psycho bikos, yeah. <laughs> Stand aside, we're on bikes. What is the view over here to the west? You're looking towards Powderham Castle, which is the seat of the uh, Courtney family, which is the uh, Earl of Devonshire. And that's Powderham Castle, just hidden in the trees. They have big rock events there. And then behind that is the Holden Hills, uh, which run from Exeter virtually down to Torbay. And then we've got uh, Dartmoor in the very, very distance. Watch out for the tandem. Yeah. So is Englishness something that you feel strongly about. I mean, you've written songs, in particular I'm thinking about Roots, mm. a song about how the English don't really have the same kind of cultural roots as the Scots and the Welsh and, and the Irish. Is that an issue that you feel strongly about? It's not so much an issue. It's just if you're writing songs about the people that you meet, you know, working people, or if you write songs based upon the English folk tradition, it creeps into the very essence of it. But then you have to ask, what, what is Englishness? What constitutes it? Because 
what are our ethnic instruments? I mean, is there a sound that defines being English in the way that the pipes or the fiddles do? And you have to say no. Um, what we do, I think, and it, it, perhaps it's our gift, is to take from all these different traditions and to make something that's hopefully fresh. But if you were to say, say to a Scottish audience as, a, as, a, as, a, as an English folk group, it, it doesn't really mean a lot. And likewise to, to most English people, if you say English acoustic music or English folk music, what is that flavour? Whereas if you were to say Irish, people have a sense of river dance, you know, they have a sense of Christy Moore. There are some very iconic Irish folk musicians, if you like, you know, they, like if you say blues or Cajun. If you say English music, it doesn't really... You know, what does that actually mean? But is there, there is an English tradition, isn't there? There is an there English are, there tradition. There are tr English traditional songs. There are. There is a very strong English tradition, and I, I think the whole sense of Englishness is growing all the time. Um, it's certainly growing in, in ales and in gin, you know, and in regional food. And it's nice to think that music could just become part of that that sense because the problem being, of course, is that Englishness was always associated with Britishness and empire. If you look at the films of the World Cup crowd in 66, they're waving the Union Jack, not the Cross of St George. And it was always regarded, I imagine, by our Celtic cousins as something that was synonymous with oppression, you know. I think that's changing now because, in a sense, we're all regions, aren't we? We're all regions of this great big global economy. We're just currently just a region of Europe, like the Catalans, you know, or, or like, the, like Flanders or so. So I think it's possible now to celebrate your identity without someone else being threatened by it. But is it easier to celebrate being Devonian than it is to celebrate being English? Um, in a sense it is, yeah, in a sense. Because the Cross of St George has been hijacked by some right-wing groups, hasn't I it? Think, I think it's been reclaimed now. I think it was particularly in the 80s, maybe. Uh, I think less so now. But, but as regards county identity, I mean, Cornish obviously is... They have a very, very strong sense of themselves. But generally thinking, I, I, I think our, our regions are, are becoming more confident about expressing the, you know, where they're from in the way that you know, Geordies are and Scousers are and Yorkshire people, you know. But would you like to write the song that the rugby crowd sings because the, you know, the, they've got Flower of Scotland? Um, would you like to write the English song that takes us away from Swing Low, Sweet Chariots yeah, and Jerusalem? You've got it? Yeah. The red, red rose of England has never bloomed so fair. From Cornwall to the borders, its roots run everywhere. When I am weary and when the darkness grows, in city, town and county, we'll sing the red, red rose. OK. There you go. That's and how, how much success are you having in getting them to take it up at the Exeter Chiefs? Well, no one's ever heard that song before. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I already do a song for Exeter Chiefs, but that's based upon a, a sort of uh, a, a, an American university tribal uh, college football team chant. But, but the Redwood Rose of England, I think, would work quite well. It would work it's, extremely well. It's got the counties and the borders and the roots, and it's got all the right sort of keywords, you know. But um, who knows, maybe this podcast will be the first time that that new anthem has been sung. <laughs> So where have you brought us now, Steve? Where have we come to? I've brought you to Topsham, uh, to Darts Farm, overlooking the Clist and the X, and Exmouth is way down to the south of us now, where we were earlier. And this oh. seems like a really good place to think about one of your most famous songs, which is called Country Life. Yeah. It's a very angry song. What provoked it? Well, to be honest, what provoked it, when I was doing up a cottage in Dorset, 
One of the, I was labouring for a guy called Pat Symes who was a retired fireman from Charmouth. He was in his late 60s. And we, it was a little thatched cottage by the stream, by the church in Whitchurch, Canonicorum. And he said, I was born in this cottage. I said, what? He said, yeah, couldn't afford to live here now. So I just thought, gosh. And, and now that home, that cottage has been empty for 15 years since we left there. And I just started thinking, well, what if I'm a young man who can't afford to live in my own village? And that's the way I look at the world. It's not me singing the song. I'm playing the part of a young guy who's been priced out, can't find a job, can't find a place to live in the place where he was raised. And in the West Country, that is such a common story. Would you sing it for us now? Yeah, of course. It goes like this. Working in the rain, cutting up wood Didn't do my little brother much good Lost two fingers in a chainsaw bite All he does now is drink and fight Saws a bit of grass and hots up cars He talks to travel but never gets far Loves his kids and left his wife An everyday story of country life And the red brick cottage where I was born is the end of a holiday home Most of the year there's no one there The village is dead and they don't care Now we live on the edge of town Haven't been back since the pub closed down One man's family pays the price For another man's vision of country life You know my old man was 84 And his generation won the war But he left the farm Forever when they only kept on one in ten Landed gentry county snobs Where were you when they lost their jobs? No one marched or subsidised To save a country away of life There were silent fields and empty lanes Drifting smoke from distant flames Picture postcard hills on fire Cattle burning in funeral pyres Out to graze they look so sweet We hate the blood but we want the meat So buy me a beer and I'll take my knife Cut you a slice of country life But if you want cheap food then here's the deal Family farms are brought to heel By a hammer blow of size and scale Was foot and mouth just another nail In the coffin of our English dream It lies out there on the village green Where agri-barons cap in hand Strip our green and our pleasant land Of meadow, woodland, hedgerow pond And what remains built upon Of country life. And, and this is the song that earned you the title of the gravel voice spokesman yeah. for the rural poor. Well, we released it as a single and I thought I'd end up on radio too. I ended up on bloody farming today <laughs> trying to justify the song. This guy was giving me a really hard time about half past six in the morning. He said, this is just an anti-town rant. And I said, hang on a minute, I'm playing the part of a young guy who can't afford to live in his own village. You know, I, I'm not the narrator. And uh, I said, it's like going up to the guy playing Hamlet and say, be nice to your mother, isn't it? <laughs> so I was on Farming Today rather than Radio 2. 
too, but it's you know it's, it was profile. And do you feel sometimes that songs can change things? Do you think that songs can act as a catalyst for change? Mm, I know I'm not sure they're that powerful. I think they can capture a moment, and maybe they can prick someone's conscience. But it, you can't just sing to people who already agree with you. So you have to be sort of slightly subtle, you know, in the way that you put over these these songs like this. And when you sing it now. Does it have a different resonance from when you first wrote it and, and sang it? I, I think it's become more relevant. You know, I, I did that interview with Tom Heap, I think, when we first met, and he said that said more in three minutes than I could do in a 45-minute documentary. So I thought that was a good pat on the head from the farming correspondent, anyway. What's on your mind now? I mean, the, the, obviously we've talked about some songs that you wrote some time ago, you've played some of them for us. Yeah. Are there things that are troubling you now that you're worrying a way out that you're trying to get into shape for, for songs? There's always something, I mean, Dave told us that story about his fisherman friend this morning, the guy they lost off Tinmouth. There's a song there. There's always personal stories like that. But I'm just glad to be back here in, in where I'm from, making a living. Because I honestly thought I'd have to leave to become successful. And I'm writing about what I see every day. And it, it's quite nourishing. So for me, that's just to make a living in the place that you're from is, is success enough for me. You can subscribe to Folk on Foot on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts by clicking the subscribe button. And if you've enjoyed this edition, please do rate and review us so that more people can find us. And there are more episodes of Folk on Foot with Cara Dillon in Dungiven, Kareen Polwart on Fallamore, the Younguns in Hartlepool, Sam Lee singing with Nightingales in Sussex, and Eliza Carthy in Robin Hood's Bay. <laughs>